So take up your copy of God's Word now and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And the particular words to which I would call your attention this morning are found in verses 17 to 20 of Matthew chapter 5, remembering that we are in this wonderful passage of Matthew's gospel called the Sermon on the Mount. This is, as Matthew structures his gospel, the first uh, discourse of five, uh, perhaps reflecting on the five books of Moses. This whole sermon um, may have taken 20 minutes to deliver, so in natural Presbyterian fashion, we cover it over a couple of years. <laughs> We're going to get every drop. Let's hear now then the word of Christ, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. This is God's word. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are the one true and eternal God who lives forever. We thank you for your word and ask you now, Lord, that you would bless it to us. Let it be a blessing to us and not a curse. Let us take the seeds that are sown here and now and to bring forth the fruit of them in our own lives. Father, we do love you and we praise you in the name of Christ who lives forever. Amen. Well, one of the great struggles of the Christian life, isn't it, is to stay between two ditches. There's one ditch on one hand and one ditch on the other hand, and we want to try to stay out of the ditches. The first ditch is called antinomianism. It simply means to be against the law, that is to teach or to live in such a, a way as to say, you know what, the law of God has no, no bearing on my life today. No application to my life today. I, I don't look to the old covenant for anything. I'm a new covenant Christian. I just live between Matthew and Revelation. You'd have to do some significant editing to make that mean what many think it means today. Many teach today that the law no longer has any bearing on the believer's life. The only law now is love, because loving is easier than keeping the law. The other ditch, though, is legalism. This is the person who is striving with his whole heart to keep the law 
so that God will finally accept him. He's got a list of do's and don'ts, and he doesn't even stop with the Ten Commandments. He adds things to that. Thinking that in this way he will gain God's favor. These are two ditches, two struggles, two areas that we wrestle with. Antinomianism being against the law and legalism. License and law. At issue for us, it comes down to this, doesn't it? What is the relationship with the gospel between the gospel of Jesus Christ and the law of God? Are these things in conflict with one another? Is God the Father in conflict with Christ the Son? Perhaps more precisely at issue is the relationship between grace and obedience. Anytime someone brings up in conversation the law of God, you respond with saying, but I believe in grace. Or on the other, time, other hand, anytime someone starts to emphasize the grace and the mercy of God, you, you say, but what about the law? And the thing is, the Bible is so very clear. This is not an issue with the clarity of the Bible. The reason that we misunderstand resides in us. What Jesus shows us from Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20 is pretty plain, pretty self-evident. He teaches us that the law of God is as sure and steadfast as the creation of God. And that those who do not look to it as the standard of righteous living and teaching must not expect a heavenly reward. These are confronting words. The law of God is as certain as heaven and earth, God's creation. And those who do not look to it as the standard of righteous living and teaching must not expect a heavenly reward. We have as we've come to this point, we've looked at, we've just learned that, that God calls us as his people to, to have an effect upon the world. It's not appropriate for us to think that now that I'm saved, I'm going to separate myself, I'm going to live apart from the world. God expects his people to have a positive effect upon the world. He has called us to do that as salt and as light. That God ministers to the culture through Christians. Verses 17 to 20 then serve as something of a, a transition point and kind of as a heading. Christ has moved from proclaiming what a citizen of heaven looks like. That is, uh, we are poor in spirit. We are mourning over sin. Persecuted people. To talking up teaching us what it looks like now to live as citizens in the in-between. How do we go about living as citizens in the kingdom of God? Remember, we presently possess the kingdom of God and awaiting the consummation of that kingdom. How do we live? Well, Jesus teaches us in three pretty simple points. He demonstrates his own relationship to the law of God in verse 17. 
And then he will teach us about the eternal certainty of the law of God in verse 18. And then finally, he will speak to the Christian's relationship to the law of God in verses 19 to 20. First, let's look, though, at Jesus' relationship to the law of God. Read with me again verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Here, Jesus is explaining his relationship to the law. And as you listen to what Jesus says, he is directing your whole thought life. Do not think wrongly about what I am teaching you. You must understand my relationship to the law and to the prophets. So just in, in, in first order here, what, what is the law and what is the prophets? In the Hebrew canon of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets could be understood to re- refer to all of the Old Testament. The law refers to the five books of Moses. The prophets refers to everything from Joshua and after. Jesus is teaching us that he has not come to abolish any of this. He is explaining his relationship to the law. I've not come to destroy any of this. I'm not tearing it down. I'm not taking it away. I'm not lessening the strength of it. I'm not changing or altering any of the teaching of the law. Instead, I'm coming to fulfill it. And we remember here a very important point. We touched on this this morning in our Sunday school lesson, that Jesus in his incarnation was made under the law. Now, in his divinity, Christ is the source and the scope of the law. The law itself is an expression of the character and nature of Christ in His divinity. But when He took flesh to Himself, He was made under the law. The law itself became a tutor to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that we read in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8 that as a son, He learned obedience to the law of God. And so at this point, we need to consider for just a second the scope of what we mean by the term law. How is Jesus using the term law in this passage? Scripture refers to the law of God in at least three types. We understand the law of God to be moral. God, in His commands, commands our behaviors. He commands how we are to conduct ourselves. That's the moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments. We also refer to the law as judicial. This is that aspect of the Old Covenant law that taught, for instance, that a Hebrew man, when he built a house, was to build a fence around the roof so that he would protect life. Another man might not fall off of his roof. Or that he was not to interweave certain types of fabric. 
The third type of law is ceremonial. You think the sacrifices. That if you became unclean, you were to bring a dove or a goat or a bull and you were to offer it at the tabernacle to satisfy or as a symbol of satisfaction of your sins. When Jesus says here, I have come to fulfill the law, He has all three types of law in view. When He was made under the law, Christ has in view the whole Mosaic economy. He had to keep it all perfectly. So let me give you an illustration of what I mean by this point. Turn over with me. Hold your finger here and turn to Mark 1.44. Jesus lives in an in-between time Himself. The entirety of the Mosaic Law is in effect. The temple stood. And so when a man who was unclean because of leprosy came to Him and asked Him to be made clean, which has ceremonial meaning, notice what Jesus says to him after He healed him. See that you say nothing. This is Mark 1.44. See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. You see, here Jesus is instructing the people of God to live in obedience to all of the law of God, even the ceremonial aspect. Why? Because Christ was made under the law. In this way, Jesus demonstrated the righteousness of God's law. The law of God instructed the human Jesus, the man Jesus of His duty to God, and it was the means by which He demonstrated His commitment to the Father. Uh, you remember when we talked about Satan's temptation of Christ and the fact that Christ could not be tempted by this sin or could not be uh, drawn away into sin because of His undying, unchanging love for the will of the Father. Well, how does he exhibit that love for his father? He exhibited it by keeping his law completely. In John 3.34, we are taught that Jesus was given the Holy Spirit without measure. Now, the Holy Spirit was given to the, to the man Christ so that he could proclaim the glory of God and so that he could keep God's law. So as you look to Christ, you must consider Him as one who upheld God's law without reservation. This is what He means. I came to fulfill it. He did not see God's law as a burden, but as a delight. It was his heart's desire to do the will of his Father. And this, this is a picture then of the image into which you and I are being conformed. Not just that there will be some sort of external conformity to the law of God, but that our hearts will yearn to please the Father. Turn over now with me to Psalm 119. I, I want you just to see this quickly 
as an expression of Christ's delight in God's law. Psalm 119, you remember this is the longest psalm in the Psalter. We look at Psalm 119 as an expression of our love for the Word of God, but consider some of the words. I want want you to look first of all at Psalm 119 verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Look with me at verse 16. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Christ, this is an expression of Christ's delight in the law of God. It is not a burden to him. Notice with me now in verses 33 and 4 to 40. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with all my heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. You see, this this is a picture of Christ's love to walk in His Father's ways and to express His love to His Father through His obedience. Your will is perfect. And the man Christ Jesus being made under the law kept this law perfectly. But the question for us Christians is, It's pretty clear, isn't it? Since Jesus fulfilled it, He says, that's my purpose. I've come not to throw it away, but to do everything that it requires to fulfill it. Have its demands ended? Well, in verse 18, I think Jesus makes pretty clear for us how long the demands of the law will last. Notice with me, Matthew chapter 5, now verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus here is explaining to you and me the durability of His law. The durability of the law of God. He says that it will not pass away until heaven and earth themselves pass away. And I would suggest to you that we understand heaven and earth will never pass away. It will be renewed. The heaven and the earth will be renewed. The heaven and the earth, just like you and I, will be made a new creation. It will be burned. As Peter says, it will be cleansed of iniquity, but it will not pass away. Heaven and earth will go on and on and on. And so because the heaven and the earth will never pass away, neither should we understand that the law of God will ever 
pass away. We learn from Romans chapter 3 and verse 31. This very point. Since God, this is verse 30, is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we understand, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Does faith do away with the law of God? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Jesus will go on in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, to teach us that the golden rule itself, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, is but the fulfillment, the enactment, the upholding of the authority of God's law. So let's think about this in just a second, uh, in some detail. I've mentioned to you that we often think about the law as moral and as judicial and as ceremonial. The moral law continues forever. Here Jesus is referring to the Ten Commandments. They will be renewed, but will, uh, the, the earth and the heavens will be renewed, but the law will never pass away. Think of it this way. Under the New Covenant, we remember, what did Jeremiah promise about the writing of the law of God? Where did God say He would write it? Upon your very heart. He would write it on your heart. In other words, He is making you like the Psalm 119 Christ who takes delight in the law of God. It will never be erased. Is He going to somehow take your heart away a second time? What about the ceremonial law? Will we understand this differently? That law of sacrifices, that law of cleansings, that law of ritual washings has been abrogated in the Lord Jesus Christ. That means done away with. And why would that be? Because all of those things, according to Hebrews chapter 10, only pointed forward to the reality. Jesus, we are taught by the writer of Hebrews that bulls and goats, their blood does not satisfy for even one sin but they point us to the perfect and eternal once for all sacrifice in the blood of Christ. So we don't continue sacrificing. Why? Because the perfect has come. The ceremonial law is ended. What about the civil law? Well, this too has been generally done away with because we don't exist in a kingdom as Israel did. However, we do acknowledge That the ceremonial law, these principles of preserving life, do continue in the sense of general equity. What does that mean? It means that we look to these laws as ways by which to apply the wisdom of God's law in everyday life. But I want you to think of this in just this simple term. The Ten Commandments, the moral law, is simply a revelation of God's character. He didn't flip a coin, to borrow from R.L. Dabney. He did not flip a coin. I I don't want you to think I'm plagiarizing here. Um, um, I appreciate the way that R.L. Dabney, good Southern Presbyterian, put it. 
He said, those who think that the moral law can simply be done away with suggest that God could have easily, just as easily have made lying a virtue and life-preserving a vice. In other words, it's just a flip of the coin. Are we going to be truthful or liars? Do we affirm, should adultery actually be a moral good? You see, that's what you're suggesting if you say that the moral law can simply be done away with. He just flipped the coin. He just determined it on a whim. Remember also, though, that the Ten Commandments were given in the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus, the entire theme of that book is knowing God, knowing who He is in truth. And so God gives the law, not just to say, here is what is expected of you, but to say, here is who I am. Therefore, to set aside this law is to neglect who God is. Because this law is a revelation of God's character, we must understand it to be as eternal as God is. It will never pass away. It is as certain as the heavens and the earth. And so this helps us then to understand our relationship to God's law. That Jesus, the perfect man, made under the law, obeyed the law perfectly, understanding that the law is as certain and as enduring as the creation itself. Thirdly, lastly, we see the Christian's relationship to the law of God in verses 19 through 20. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In short, Jesus is reminding us that we are still liable to the law. You and I are still under the law. Just as the true and perfect man was under the law to demonstrate his love to the Father, you and I are under the law's demand. The law is an expression of every man's duty to God as creator and lawgiver. So this isn't just a Christian thing, is it? There is not a being in existence that has not been created and given his being by God. And what this means then is that there is not a being that does not exist under the demands of the law, who is not obligated to acknowledge God as his creator. All men are shown by the law that they owe obedience to God. But the law serves a second function in our lives, doesn't it? We are reminded from Romans chapter 10, verse 3 to 4, and especially, especially Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, that the law leads us to We come to Christ through the law. Romans 10, 3-4. Christ is the end of the law. When we look into the law, what are we reminded of instantly? I, I can't do this. If we're honest and we see the application of the law to our hearts and to our thoughts, 
God, in his commands, commands even how you feel about things. I know that's un-American. We are led to Christ Jesus. It is your guardian, your tutor, that points you to a Savior, one who has fulfilled the demands of the law on your behalf. A third use of the law then, I've been saved, I've been justified, I am declared righteous in the, soul, in the, in, in the eyes of God. The law continues as our borrowing from the confession of faith now. It is our rule of life informing us of the will of God. You see, this protects us against legalism, doesn't it? I am reminded that the law is no longer functioning as the way by which I am right with God. It can only teach me that I have broken God's law, leading me to Christ. But it also protects me against licentiousness, antinomianism. I can't put aside the law. I can't tell others not to teach the law. I can't do away with the law without being called least in the kingdom of heaven. This is a common mistake, an error. Um, The pastor of Celebration Elevation Church in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, Stephen Furtick, recently has been made publicity uh, for saying, God broke the law for love. What a heresy. The law clarifies our need for Christ but it cannot do that if it has no authority. Grace has no meaning apart from the law of God. It reminds us of what our sins deserve. And it demonstrates God's approval of obedience. Didn't you see that in Psalm 119? The one who walks in obedience to the Lord knows His blessings. And we understand, brothers and sisters, in light of this, I I don't deserve God's blessings. I seek to walk in obedience to Him and I teach others to do so, but I understand that ultimately I only know the blessings of God through Christ Jesus. Even on my best day. Christ is perfecting my disobedience. He has taken the demands of the law on Himself, the curse and the wrath of God upon Himself. Jesus ends here as we think about the Christian's relationship between the law and himself. Jesus explained the relationship between heaven and righteousness. There's an emphatic statement here. Look back at your text. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever teaches them and uh, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, and there's an extra term here that says, by a very great distance. you will most certainly never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds by a very great distance 
that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will most certainly never enter the kingdom of heaven. We think immediately of Psalm 24 too. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who's going to go up? And we can only look at this verse and conclude one thing. If this is true, I will never go to heaven. If my righteousness has to exceed even the visible religious leaders in my community, I will never go to heaven. Only Christ has fulfilled this verse. Only Christ has righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. Only Christ had righteousness that was heart and soul commitment. Only Christ has perfectly fulfilled the demands of God's law. But here is your hope, that in His mercy, God has accepted that righteousness of Christ Jesus in behalf of everyone who comes in faith. By righteous, by faith, you possess this righteousness. The law of God is as sure and steadfast as the creation of God. And those who do not look to it as the standard of righteous living and teaching must not expect a heavenly reward. You will not see Christ. Jesus fulfilled every demand of the law. He obeyed God's law in thought and in word and in deed. In behalf of all those who rest in Him through faith, God graciously accepts you. And that righteousness is credited to your account. But listen, now, you express your love for God in the same way that Christ did. He is your elder brother. You express your love for God by seeking to live in conformity to this moral law. You must look to it as the eternal standard of righteousness because it declares to you the perfect nature and character of your triune God. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your law. Thank you that it reveals to us your perfect holiness. That you are the uncompromising, the unchanging God. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.